What's the biggest problem in the world today? How would you answer that question? If you asked folks in your family or folks that you meet on the street, what, what, would, what, would, what would you think they would say? What's the biggest problem in the world today? Is it, is it pandemics? Is it racism? Is it war? Is it poverty? Is it hunger? Uh, I know a new book came out this week that says the biggest problem facing the world today is global warming. Is it nuclear war? Is it, is it, is it racism? Is it injustice? Is it sex trafficking? Is it religious intolerance? What, what would you say is, is abortion? What is the biggest problem in the world today? If you were to ask, if you were to ask Jews living in the first century in Palestine, what's the, what's the biggest problem in the world today? Here's the likely response. They would answer that question this way. The Romans are the biggest problem in the world today. The pagan Gentiles are oppressing us. They, they're living in the land promised to Abraham. And when Messiah comes, he's going to kick them out, wipe them out, and set up his kingdom, and all will be right with the world. Now, in our study of the Gospel of Luke so far, we've seen Jesus revealed to be the Son of God through countless testimonies that we've heard so far. We've heard reliable testimonies from Mary and from Elizabeth and from Zechariah and from the angels and from John the Baptist and all the way up to chapter 5 where we find ourselves this morning. Jesus has been revealed to us as the Son of God. He's been revealed to us as the Messiah, the, the last Adam, the servant of the Lord. Jesus was revealed to us as our great warrior who went out on our behalf and defeated the devil in the wilderness. So like David representing Israel, the son of God was faithful to go out and to defeat our greatest enemy. One of the things we've also noticed in Luke's gospel is Jesus exercising demons. What is, what is that teaching us about what the greatest problem in the world is? You see, if you read these chapters, you might walk away and think, you know what? The greatest problem in the world is Satan and his host. But that's not, that's not quite true. You see, what Luke is teaching us in these opening chapters is this. We're learning that there's a far more oppressive regime that's crushing the people of Israel in the first century than the Roman Empire. There's a far greater dictator than Caesar. Yes, that is Satan. But what has Satan done? Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers from seeing their greatest problem, namely unforgiven sin. What Luke wants us to see from the very outset is that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners by forgiving them of their sins. Every other problem that I named earlier, all of those problems could be solved. But if the problem of unforgiven sin isn't, prob- isn't solved, we face an eternity without Christ in hell. All of these can put you into the grave, but unforgiven sin can put us and will put us in hell. It's a universal problem. It's an infinite problem. And the question that Luke raises and answers this morning is this. Is there anyone 
who has authority to solve the problem of unforgiven sin? And the good news this morning is the answer is yes. Listen to Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 17. On one of those days, as Jesus was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was on him, that is on Jesus, to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your Bible may say friend, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them. Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Brothers and sisters, my prayer is simple. My prayer is that each one of us would know the extraordinary joy of hearing the friend of sinners say to us, your sins are forgiven. I have one point. It's just a one point sermon. It'll still take the same amount of time. Jesus has the authority to forgive your sin. That's the main idea, the main truth in this passage. Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive your sin. If you look there in verse 24, you can see this is the main idea. Look at verse 24. Don't look at me. Look at your Bibles. Here it is. This is the main verse, but that you may know, Jesus wants you to know something. What does he want you to know? That the son of man, that is referring to himself, has what? Authority on earth to forgive sin. Everything in this passage is supporting that statement, illustrating that statement and unpacking that statement. Jesus Christ has the authority to forgive your sin. In fact, the whole chapter of Luke chapter five is about the authority, the divine authority of Jesus. It opened with Jesus displaying his divine authority over nature when Jesus caught the fish and he caught Peter. Then we saw his divine authority over illness and disease. We'll see that again in our passage when he healed the leper with 
a touch and a word. And in our passage this morning, Jesus displays his divine authority once again by forgiving sin, doing something only God can do. Luke begins verse 17 like he always does by setting the scene. We know by looking at Matthew and Mark that this event occurs in Capernaum. It it most likely occurs in the house of Simon Peter and Andrew. That the last time they were in Capernaum, we're told that in verse 38 of chapter 4, they were in the house of Simon and Peter, Simon Peter. That will be funny as we get later in the service into the into the passage if you've read this before. So Jesus, he, he was born in Bethlehem, he grew up in Nazareth, but he operated his ministry out of Capernaum in the north near the Sea of Galilee. He's been preaching and teaching throughout Galilee. He's been healing the sick. He's been exercising those who are demonically oppressed. And now he's back in Capernaum and he's full of the spirit of God. He's anointed as the Holy One of God, as the Messiah. He's anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit rests upon him without measure. We're told there that the power of the Lord was upon him to heal. And I understand this to be another reference to the Spirit's power working through him. Notice verse 17. What is Jesus doing? He's teaching. Do you see that? Jesus is always teaching in the gospel according to Luke. Mark tells us in his account, Jesus was preaching the word to these people. So everywhere Jesus goes, the crowds are swarming to hear him teach. And that's what happens here. Mark says that many were gathered at this house so that there was literally no more room. Not even at the door. It, was, it wasn't just standing room only. They were spilling outside the house and there's no more room. And notice who else was there that day. Did you see? It says who had front row seats. It's a full house. It says on one of those days as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Now, this is the first time Luke has mentioned a group of people that will show up a ton in this gospel, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, or they're called later in the passage, the scribes. Now, let me just give you a brief snapshot of who these people were, because we're going to be encountering them the rest of Luke's gospel. For those of you who are Star Wars fans, when you hear Pharisees and scribes, just in your head, cue the Vader Imperial March theme. Along with the Sadducees, who we'll meet later, the Pharisees were one of the most influential religious slash political groups within Palestine in the first century. So there were, according to Josephus, there were about 6,000 Pharisees, which isn't a whole lot, but they had massive influence in the country. If you were to ask Jewish people at the time, who would be the paragon of holiness, zeal in keeping the Old Testament scriptures? They would think of Pharisees. They made a big show of this. Jesus is going to talk about their self-righteousness later on in Luke's gospel. But if you think of the old, think of, of those who were Jews who were zealous about the law, you think of Pharisees. So when, when Paul is giving his spiritual resume in Philippians chapter 3, remember what he said? 
He said he was circumcised of the eighth day, the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. And then he said, as to the law, a what? A Pharisee. He was zealous for the Old Testament law. The Pharisees, they wanted to keep the law of the Old Testament, so they they prized the Old Testament scriptures. But what got them in trouble wasn't their prizing of the Old Testament scriptures. On the same level as the Old Testament, they put their own rabbinical laws, like the Talmud and things like that, as well as the oral law that was passed down through the rabbis. And Jesus will say later to the Pharisees that you've taken these commandments of men and you've put them on the same level as the commandments that come from God. But these are the Pharisees. They're, 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 they're with this group called the teachers of the law or the scribes. That's like a subset of the Pharisees. These were the PhDs in the Old Testament. They were the experts on God's word. They, these were the Torah experts. And that's how they influenced Israel. They had scribes throughout the the, the nation who taught the Pharisaical interpretations of the Old Testament law. So if you notice in this passage, it's like a big Pharisee scribe convention. Did you see this? They they, they are all coming from all the villages and Judea and Galilee and Jerusalem. It's a huge Pharisee scribe convention and it's meeting. It looks like at Peter's house there in Capernaum. The teachers of Israel have come to hear Jesus teach. Suddenly, in the middle of Jesus' sermon, there's a distraction. Now, if you talk to any preacher, they will give you lists of stories of hilarious, distracting things that have happened in the middle of sermons. I'm praying for one this morning. We'll see what happens. keep, Keep your focus on the roof. We'll see. Verse 18, and behold, some men were bringing a man on a bed. Notice who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and to lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. So if you read Mark's account, he tells us there were four men. So four men plus the paralytic. So these five guys want to... To get before Jesus, but they can't get in because of the crowd. Now, children, when we when we say paralytic, when we say paralyzed, a lame person, we're talking about someone who can't walk. We don't know why this man can't walk. Um, We're not told he maybe he had some type of of disease or he had a a spinal injury. We don't know. There, There were no wheelchairs in the first century. So in order to go anywhere because he couldn't walk. He had to have these other guys, these four men, these four friends, apparently, who would carry him on a bed or a pallet or like a stretcher. And so, as you can see, they they come to bring their friend to be healed. But the only way this outsider was going to get on the inside was if his friends carried him to Jesus. So like, like the leper we met earlier, this man is desperate. He, he can't help himself. He, he has to have others help him to get into the presence of Jesus. Now, if you read Luke's gospel, the crippled or the lame are often included in the groups of people in Israel who were looked upon as outsiders. Those who were blind, those who were lame, those who were crippled. 
They were looked down upon as outsiders. Maybe not as far of an outsider as the, the leper, but outsiders nonetheless. And so this, these friends, I mean, it's amazing. Now, most of us, I imagine if we were helping someone, you, 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 get, you get the guy, you carry him all the way to the house, and you just see it's, it's too crowded, and you just say, you know what? Hey, we tried our best. Now let's give it a shot tomorrow, right? That's not what they do. These guys are creative and they're persistent. Verse 19, finding no way to bring him in. Notice they go up to the roof and they start working through the, the roof, the ceiling, to get this guy down in the midst of Jesus. Mark says they removed the roof. They made an opening in the roof. Now, I'm not going to talk about houses in first century Palestine, but you can imagine they had... You know, you had the, 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 the beams that went across, but then you had this kind of thatchwork roof that had mud tiles and things like that in it. And what Luke and Mark are telling us is they, they made an opening. They literally dug through the roof. Now, I, I can't imagine that this was a quiet effort, right? I mean, Je- think about it. Jesus is in the house. Maybe it's Peter's house. We don't, we don't know for certain, but it's probably Peter's house. P- Jesus is preaching the word. And in the middle of his preaching, all of a sudden there's this noise and everyone's looking up. Maybe debris is falling. We're not sure. Dust or whatever. But then suddenly there's an opening and then a crippled man is lowered down right in front. It says before the face of Jesus. He's right in the front row. He went from being on the outside and now he's in front of the Pharisees and the scribes. He's right there in front of Jesus. I hope Peter had insurance. So these four guys are digging through the roof. Peter's probably thinking, great Scott, what's happening? And then after this opening, this man's let down and now he's in the middle. And I I wonder, I mean, I bet you at this point, you could probably hear a pin drop. Now, how would Jesus respond to this interruption? Does he mildly rebuke the guy? Does he say, hey, I heal you? No, look at his, look what he does. Verse 20, it's shocking. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said, man, or your Bible may say friend. It's a better rendering, friend. Your sins are forgiven you. What? These men brought their friend who was crippled to Jesus for healing. But Jesus forgives the man's sins. He he sees the action of these men. He sees their willingness to bring this man to Jesus. And, And he sees this as a display of their faith. And I don't take that phrase, their faith, seeing their faith. I don't think it's only the friends. I think the man himself is also included in that. But true faith removes any obstacle to get to Jesus. Jesus sees their persistence and he speaks directly to the paralyzed man. And he says, your sins. Mark says, son, friend, your sins are forgiven. That's a divine passive verb. He's saying, friend, your sins are forgiven as forgiven by God. Now, husbands, I want you to imagine a scenario. 
Um, uh, just a hypothetical. Uh, maybe it's not hypothetical for you. Um, but let's say you had an argument with your wife this morning. Let's say before church, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed. You, you sinned against your wife. You said something in self-righteousness. You got mad at her. And, uh, and then you come to the service. And before the service, I walk up to you both. And uh, I say to you, husband, you sinned against your wife. But I forgive you. I'm sure that your, your wife would be like, what? <laughs> Wait a second. You forgive my husband, but what it, how's that work? Do you see... Wait a second. The, the, the thought in this is, wait a second. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus, what are you talking about? Only God can forgive sins. God is the one who provides forgiveness for sinners. But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He's basically saying, I forgive you. That's what he's saying. Now, it's God's prerogative, brothers and sisters, to forgive sin. He alone can release sinners from their sins. But Jesus is claiming in this statement the authority of God himself. He can, he's doing, just like with the leper, he's doing something only God has the power and the authority and the ability to do. I'm not going to read all these verses. I just want to mention a few. Exodus 34, what does God say of himself? When he's unpacking his divine name to Moses, he says he is the Lord, a God who is merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, who keeps steadfast love for thousands and who forgives iniquity. Nehemiah 917, we read that God is a God who is ready to forgive. Psalm 130 verse four, we read that earlier. With you, there is forgiveness. Isaiah 38, 17 God promises to throw our sins behind his back. Micah 7, 19, as far as the east, excuse me, it, God treads our iniquities underfoot and casts all of our sins into the depths of the sea. We read Psalm 103 earlier. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, I the Lord am he. I the Lord am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. Daniel 9, 9 says to the Lord belong mercy and forgiveness. Forgiveness, brothers and sisters, belongs to God alone. That's the uniform witness of the Old Testament scriptures. And the Pharisees and the scribes knew their Old Testament. They knew that. And they also knew that if someone's claiming to do something that only God can do, well, that's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. So you can see the response. You can see the response of the Pharisees and the scribes. Wait a second. Who is this that's talking? Who's speaking like this? Who does this guy think he is? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're correct in that assumption. They're wrong because they don't understand that God is the one speaking to them. Who's standing there teaching them. But we see that Jesus, he perceives their thoughts he sees into their hearts just, just as God it would because that's who he is. And like a good rabbi, do you see what he does? Instead of answering their question, he asks them a better question than the question they just asked. Verse 22, why do you question in your hearts? And then he asks this question in verse 23, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you 
or to say, rise and walk. Now, brothers and sisters, there are some times when there are questions that are just obvious. That's not an obvious question to answer. You need to, you need to think about that question a while. You need to ponder that. So when you're doing your Bible reading, when you're studying the Bible, when you get to questions like this, you don't need to be like, ah, that's too hard. You just have, you have to think. You have to ponder. You have to meditate. That's not an obvious question to answer. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? They seem, I don't know, are they the same? Are they, one of them is easier than other. Now think about it. If you say to someone who's crippled, your sins are forgiven, you can't verify that readily. Right? I mean, maybe they're forgiven, maybe they're not. But if I say to a, a cripple, rise and walk, it's going to be pretty obvious whether or not I have the authority to do that. He's either going to get up and walk or he's not. That's a little bit easier to verify. So Jesus is saying, Jesus is saying, your sins are forgiven. Verse 24, but so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your mat or your bed and go home. Verse 25. And immediately he got up before them and picked up what he'd been lying on and went home glorifying God. Now, don't you love the reversal that you find in this passage? Think about this. How was the man brought in before Jesus? He was brought in being carried on a what? Being carried on that bed. But by, after he meets Jesus, he trusts Jesus. He's forgiven of his sins. He carries his bed out of that place. He was carried in and now he's carrying the bed out and he's glorifying God. And so Jesus is doing something here. He's healing this man. He's restoring this man. He's giving him the ability to walk again. But what is more, he's forgiving this man's sins. This is something that bears the witness of who he is. He is the long-awaited Messiah. And Isaiah 35, this is, what, this is what it said would happen when the Lord returns to Zion. Listen to this, Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped and the lame shall leap like a deer. When lame people start walking in Israel, that's when you know the Messiah has drawn near. And so Jesus shows everyone in that house that he's not only able to heal this man's physical paralysis, but he's able to heal something even more pressing, his spiritual paralysis, his unforgiven sin. I'm not going to spend that much time on that phrase, the son of man. Do you see that? Many of you know this already, but the son of man in the Old Testament, most of the time when that phrase is used, it's just another way of saying a human being. So all of us in this room are sons of men in the Old Testament sense. We're sons of Adam. Just a way to speak about a human being. But there are times in the Old Testament scriptures, like for instance, in Daniel chapter seven, if you look at Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14, where there is a son of man who's promised to come 
who has the authority of God, the authority of the ancient of days, the authority of one who will be worshipped by all nations. And in the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels, Jesus will take this name, this title from the Old Testament scriptures and apply it to himself. And what he's saying in this passage is, is that he has the authority of God as God, as the Son of Man, to forgive sins. So this bedridden man, this crippled man, walks home a forgiven man. And notice their response. Verse 26, and amazement seized them all and they glorified God and they were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Mark adds that the crowds were saying, we've never seen anything like this. So that's, that's what happens in this passage. What are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to make of this passage. How do we think through applying this passage to our own lives? Let me conclude our time by thinking about some ways that we can take this text and what happens here and apply it to our lives. First, let's think of it as some application for us as a church, as a church. We can learn, I think, something as a church from the zealous and even stubborn, I think it's a holy stubbornness and persistence of these men who are trying to get this needy man to Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, when I read this passage, I I say to myself, I want friends like this, amen? I mean, these friends, nothing could stand in their way. Every time they got to a roadblock or a speed bump, they just looked for a way around, They would not stop until they got their friend to Jesus. They carried him despite the crowds, despite the challenges, despite the roof tiles, despite the social awkwardness, despite all of those things. They wanted and were determined to get their friend to Jesus. Now, this passage isn't mainly about evangelism. It's not. It's about Jesus. It's about who Jesus is. It's about his identity. However... As a church, corporately and individually, I think that the stubborn, holy persistence of these men should help us, should challenge us. Just ask ask yourself this morning, what excuses have you made, even this week, of not helping the needy get to Jesus? What excuses do we make as followers of Christ that keep us from helping, whether it's our family or friends or neighbors or co-workers, those that we know who are needy of getting them to Jesus? Maybe there are people in your life this morning that you've kind of mentally written off. You, maybe you've talked to them in the past, you've prayed for them, but you're thinking, you know what? They're just never going to come to Christ. They're, they're, they're too far gone. There's no hope for them. They're beyond, they're beyond my help. As a church, we need to repent of any faithlessness. There, there's no one that's too far gone that Jesus cannot seek and save. 
So verse 20 was convicting. Jesus says, it says in verse 20, when Jesus saw their what? Faith. So we need to ask ourselves as a church, where is our faith? Where's our faith? Where is your faith? What risks are you taking right now to get needy ones to Christ? A couple simple steps. You think, well, how do I do this? How do I do this? Well, here's, here's five quick things. I won't spend a lot of time on them, but here's five. So the first thing you can do is, if you know someone who's needy, who's outside of Christ, the first thing is always pray for them. Pray that God would save them. Second step, find out a way to serve them. Find out some way to serve them. Do you know anybody who's like, I don't want to be served? I mean, when someone serves you, does something for you, act of whatever, do you say, get away from me, stop serving me. I don't like to have people show me kindness. No, no one's like that. So find ways, to, think of ways to serve. Number three, invite them. Hey, invite, them, invite them to come with you to church. There's nothing like going to church during a pandemic. It's great. Number four, number four, give them something. If you don't feel comfortable talking to them about Jesus, that's okay. There's plenty of, of, of material. There's plenty of, of, of resources. And if you don't know what to give someone who's not a Christian, please talk to me afterwards. I'll help you. Give them something to read. Say, I've read this. It changed my life. Give them something. And then... Fifth, share. Share the good news with them. Share with them what God has done for you in Christ. Pray, serve, invite, give, share. Five simple things we can do to help as a church to get needy folks to Jesus. This is a good conversation question after the service. So after the service, you're probably going to eat at home or somewhere. It's a good thing to ask. Ask one another, hey, who can we be praying for? Who can we be serving? Who, who can we be reaching out to with the good news of Jesus? Good thing to talk about and pray about. One thing, else, one thing else as a church. As a church, brothers and sisters, let's glorify God today. Think about it. Somebody in your life helped bring you to Jesus. Who was that for you? You didn't just, you weren't born as a believer. Somebody helped bring you to Christ. That, that is every day we should be thanking God and glorifying him for putting people in our lives who took that chance to bring us to Christ. So that's the first thing. There's also, there's only, there's, that, that was one of the longer ones. Number two, critics. So we have something for the church. We have something for critics in this passage. This passage has something to say to critics of Jesus. So the critics in this passage, of course, were the Pharisees. They were the scribes. They quickly identified something they thought was wrong in Jesus, and they, they viewed him as being wrong. The, the thing is, though, they provided no solution to the problem of unforgiven sin. Now, um, this goes by a lot of different names, so don't get hung up on the name, but I think you'll understand what I'm referring to. Many today who identify themselves as critics of Jesus also participate fully and wholeheartedly in something that is called cancel culture or online shaming or whatever you want to call it. Um, columnist David Brooks, he calls, listen to this, he calls social media a coliseum culture. 
where we sit around watching someone get rhetorically eaten alive. It's true. Andrew Sullivan, who's an agnostic journalist, he he said that cancel culture is this. He says, quote, it fills the void that Christianity once owned without any of the wisdom and restraint that Christianity once provided. Wow. This is from, from an agnostic saying that about cancel culture. Now, all of these writers, not just Christian writers, but folks who aren't believers, what they observe is this. We live in the Christ-haunted West that craves for justice and loves to identify the sins and wrongs of others, but offers no hope or opportunity for forgiveness. So a blood sacrifice is demanded. A life must be offered, but no atonement is actually secured. There's no reconciliation. Wrongdoers must be punished. Repentance is never enough. There's a longing for justice, but there's no justification. Wrongdoers are ruined, but they are never redeemed. They're never forgiven. Now, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, we're glad that you're here. You're, you're welcome to be here. We're, we're thankful that you're here. And we want you to know the good news about Jesus. And the fact that you care about justice is a wonderful thing. It, it, it reveals the fact that you're made, as the Bible says, in the image of God. A God who is a God of love and a God who is a God of justice. And we want to admit this morning that that we are those who are made in the image of God and we long for justice. But the Bible doesn't just say that the world is broken. The Bible says that we're actually broken. It's not simply those who are on the wrong side of history who are in the wrong. The Bible says that all of us are in the wrong. We're all in the wrong. We've all sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. The Pharisees and the scribes looked really great on the outside. They looked really clean on the outside, but they covered up their sins of pride and self-righteousness with the garb of religion. And friend, many in this country have done the exact same thing. They've put Christianity as a garb and as as an outward show, but inside it's just pride and sin and vileness. But Jesus sees through all that. He knows our hearts, whether we sin in religious ways or whether we sin in irreligious ways. All of us must be forgiven by a holy God. And we can't do anything to earn that forgiveness. Forgiveness is a gift that only comes from God through Jesus Christ. And it's only received in the empty hands of faith. If you were to look at the life of Jesus from a human perspective, you might conclude that he was on the wrong side of history. I mean, look at the way he died. He died alone, abandoned, rejected as a criminal executed by the state. From the worldly perspective, he looked like he was on the wrong side of history. He was abandoned. He was naked. He was accused of being a blasphemer. He was forsaken. But see, the good news of Christianity, friend, is that this was God's plan. He died in the place of sinners. He didn't have any sins. 
And on the third day, God raised him from the dead as a testimony that his sacrifice had been accepted and that he could justify those who put their trust in him. Buddha, you know, his dying words were strive without ceasing. Christ's dying words were it is finished. So when Jesus offers forgiveness, he offers full pardon. No questions asked. He covers all of our sins. So instead of aiming to be on the right side of history, what this passage reminds us is that the most important thing in the world is to be finally and through grace on the right side of a holy God. That's what counts for eternity. Jesus, the Son of God, holy, innocent, unstained. He died as the original scapegoat. He bore in our sins. He bore in his body our sins on the tree. And so for all who trust in him, for all who receive him, we can say to you with confidence that Jesus Christ endured the cross. He despised the shame. And that if you place your trust in him, you will be forgiven of all of your sins. So, friend, you're invited this morning to turn and to trust in Christ, to receive him by faith alone. Let me close by mentioning one more thing. This passage has something to say to us about cripples, about cripples. Perhaps this morning you're struggling to believe that you are truly forgiven. Um, You say the creed, you say, I believe in the forgiveness of sins but you find it really difficult to feel forgiven. You you say in your head, I know I'm forgiven, but in your heart, if you're honest, you, you admit there's just a lot of lingering doubts. Because, I mean, after all, the pastor doesn't know the things I did, even this week. Well, I think, brothers and sisters, as we close, it's good to remind ourselves that this cripple in the passage It's like a divine object lesson in forgiveness, isn't it? I want you to think about it for a second. What did this crippled man, what did this paralyzed man contribute to this extraordinary event? What did he actually bring with him other than his own crippledness? What did he have to offer besides his neediness? Nothing. What did he do? Nothing. He he, he didn't walk in. He was carried. He, he, he didn't lower himself. He was lowered. He didn't say anything. He didn't do anything. We're not told that he did anything at all. And Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven you. He simply trusted in Christ and all of his sins were forgiven. So friend, brothers and sisters, you aren't justified by your feelings. You're justified through faith in Christ. He is your righteousness, not your feelings. You trust in Christ and eventually your feelings will follow. So be encouraged. We we weren't just spiritually crippled. We were spiritually dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses. This is. He set aside that big 
IOU that we owed to God. He set that aside by nailing it to the cross of his dearly beloved son. So if you don't feel forgiven this morning, what the Lord in this passage is calling you to do is to begin preaching to yourself instead of listening to yourself. If you find yourself thinking, you know, I need to clean myself up before I go to the Lord and ask for forgiveness. This passage is saying, you know what? You're thinking like a Pharisee. Whoever, whoever comes to me, Jesus says, I will never cast out. So come to Christ with your sins and ask him to forgive you. This passage reminds us that no matter how we feel, we have complete and full and final and forever forgiveness in Christ. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. So don't listen to your heart. I know that was a great song in the 80s. Amen. Horrible song, really. I mean, great tune, horrible message. Don't listen to your heart. Listen to the Lord. He says, he he says to you, Christian, the son of God who died and rose again, says to you, son, child, your sins are forgiven. Brothers and sisters, your sins are forgiven. This season of quarantine has been a season that has, we go through trials and we realize how much we need forgiveness, right? Because we grumble and we complain. And and I can imagine for many of us, we've been around roommates, we've been around uh, our family, we've been around our friends, we've been around our children. We've been in situations that we aren't normally in for a length of time that we don't normally find ourselves in. And one of the ways, Christians, that we show the reality of being forgiven of our sins is our willingness to extend forgiveness to others. So we read in Ephesians chapter four, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. So Christian, one application for you this afternoon is ask yourself this, who do you need to say these words to today? I forgive you or please forgive me. Who do you need to say that to today? Last thing, I promise. Preachers always have 10 last things. This is the last thing. This passage was written to reveal Christ Jesus to you. Do you see the glory of Christ in this passage? He not only, like Peter, reveals sin. He not only cleanses sinners. Jesus heals and forgives sinners. He loves sinners. That's why he came into the world to save and rescue sinners. Let me close with the words of another preacher. One of my favorites, J.C. Ryle. He said this as we close. Christ's grace and kindness to his people never changes. It never fails. It is a deep well which no one ever found the bottom of. It began from all eternity. It has borne believers in all their waywardness and shortcomings. It will flow ever forward 
like a mighty river of grace through the endless ages of eternity. Christ's love, mercy, and grace must be a sinner's plea when he begins his journey. And his love, mercy, and grace will be his only plea when he crosses the dark river and enters home. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we thank you for the matchless friend of sinners. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who died and rose again to cleanse us, to purify us, to secure our forgiveness today, tomorrow, and forever. Oh, Father, help us to trust him. Help us to cherish him. Help us to praise him forever. It's in his precious name that we do ask. In Jesus' name, amen.